Well, good morning again. Good morning to those of you that are watching online as well. And some announcements that I have for you are pretty simple this morning. First, I just wanted to extend a huge thank you to all of you who went above and beyond to make Cedar Way and Vision House work last week. Um, you know, we had had soccer club that whole week long. And um, coming into Sunday morning, I think we had like 10 out of 90 items signed up for. And by the time I got up to work on Tuesday morning, everything was taken care of. And so thank you. Thank you for your generosity. Yeah. Thank you for those of you that just kind of went, I'll go ahead and spend $8,000 on diapers. Yeah, just really thank you. Um, we just are, are grateful to be able to show up in a dependable way every single month. And there's something about that longevity that speaks love in ways that you guys have no idea what, what that even looks like. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your partnership there. The other announcement that I have is just that connect card that's on your seat. And for those of you online, um, you go online to brookviewchurch.com and fill those out. It is your way of communicating with us, and we love hearing from you. So obviously, if you're online, you just click the submit button. Um, but you're, if you're here in person this morning, you drop those off in a basket um, in the lobby on your way out. So that's it. Let's do this. Yeah? Yeah? Mr. Beaver. Sup? Where's Alex? Oh, Jen offended him. He's gone. <laughs> Hi. It's so good to have you back, man. Soon to be daddy. I'm just going to start. Yeah. So good to have you back. I would have loved to have seen him crowd surf right over the communion <laughs> set up here. Maybe not that reverent. Um, so for several weeks, well, we've been thinking about the power of words. Because in many ways, the direction of your life has been determined by words spoken to you, right, over you, about you. And now your words are shaping the direction of other lives. So the theme of this series has been a simple idea. Because our words are so powerful and because once they're out there, we can't pull them back, we should all be quick to listen, slow to speak. Try that one more time. Quick to listen, slow to speak. And then we talked last week about using our words to, to build people up, seeing every person and every conversation as a construction site, and our words as building materials. But as the Apostle Paul pointed out last week, you cannot be a builder if you're bitter. Like if you're someone that just carries around bitterness, like anger from the past, that bitterness will eventually seep out in your words. It'll seep into what you say. It'll seep into what you hold on to and refuse to say. And so dealing with our bitterness is a big deal. So this morning, we're going to take that idea kind of to the extreme because every once in a while, something strange happens in our world. Every once in a while, the saying goes, what goes around, comes around. 
So every once in a while, the, the powerless find themselves in a position of power. So the people who hurt you may someday need you. And the way that you leverage your influence and your words in that moment says a ton about the kind of person that you are. Now some, of, some of you could never imagine the, the script being flipped. Like, but you may be surprised what happens as life goes on. Life has a way of catching up. Life has a way of, of turning. And others of you, you're, like, you are right in the midst of this right now. We're, we're going to talk about this today, and you're like, this is, oh my gosh, this is me. This is my life. Because your mom or your dad wounded you deeply, and now they're elderly, and their health is failing. Their mind is going, and they need you. Or maybe your brother or sister mistreated you. Maybe they were bigger and they were older and they used that advantage to, to hurt you, to mistreat you. And now suddenly their life is going sideways and they need you. Or it might be an old friend or a, a business partner or whatever. But someone from your past that hurt you, they now need you. What you do with your power in that scenario, it says so much about the kind of person that you are. So, so far in this series, we've been looking at New Testament letters, right? For the first two weeks, we, we read a letter from James, who was the little brother of Jesus. Good answer. And, and last week, we looked at, at a letter from the Apostle Paul. Um, today, you guys, we are going, oh my gosh, we're going way back, like way back in the Old Testament. And this is the account of a family that lived almost 2,000 years before Jesus. And some of you are like, I don't do well with numbers. T okay, so put this into perspective. We are just shy of 2,000 years after Jesus. Okay, so, so this is 2,000 years approximately, almost, before Jesus. Like, this is like 4,000 years ago. Some of you are like, nah, still not competing. Well, <laughs> it was a long time ago. Okay, and, and, and what's interesting is that humans are humans. These, these people, this family, they're dealing with the same kinds of things that we all do. There, there are certain things that have not changed in 4,000 years. So this particular story spans 13 chapters, and so for the sake of time, and I think you guys will appreciate this, I'm going to need to summarize much of it. Um, but the story begins with family dysfunction, and, um, and then it kind of escalates. And so here we go. This is Genesis chapter 37, starting with verse 1. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17. Anybody in here 17? Anybody? If you were, you wouldn't raise your hand because you're 17. <laughs> oh, we got way in the back. All right, 17. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his, his father's wives. And he, he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, which is just another name for Jacob, same guy, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. 
His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Then he told his father as well as his brothers. His father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So Joseph was Jacob's favorite son because his mother was Jacob's favorite wife. So Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel, and then a couple of servants that he had children with. And I know, I just, I know some of you are like huge on application when it comes to a sermon, a message. So I want to get straight to some really important application. Men, never have a favorite wife. <laughs> All right? It, it will cause so many problems. Okay, and as we see here, it, this, it leads to this intense sibling rivalry. So it's obvious to everyone that Joseph was his father's favorite. The other boys, they clamored for dad's attention. Like they had football games, right, and soccer games, and they won awards. And Jacob was never there. He never had time, didn't care. But when Joe was playing, his dad never missed. And his dad bragged about him to everybody that he could. And the more it went on, the more the other boys died inside. And then one day, it, it gets thrown in their face because he bought Joe the robe. Now, the other boys, they all got their clothes from Walmart. <laughs> but Jacob dressed Joseph only in stuff from Nordstrom. <laughs> so the robe is this in-your-face expression of raw favoritism. And of course, Joseph, he wears the robe. He wears it everywhere. It's over 100 degrees out. This is the Middle East, for crying out loud. And he wears the robe everywhere. So one day, Joseph has this weird dream, and he says to his brothers, hey, guys, listen to my dream. In my dream, we all had sheaves, but I had the biggest sheaf of all, and all your sheaves bowed down to my sheaf. And that means that one day I'll rule over you guys. Isn't that cool? Aren't you guys happy for me? <laughs> and the writer gives us, like, insight into how they felt. See if you can pick up on it. Verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Verse 5, Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers, they hated him all the more. Verse 8, his brothers said to him, do you intend to rule over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and because of what he said. So the author is, it, this is like, really wants to be sure that we understand. They hated Joseph. Okay, but Joseph is like oblivious. It's almost scary how oblivious. And so he just keeps pouring fuel on the fire. So a different day, he has another dream, same idea, different metaphor. Eleven stars and the sun and the moon were bowing down to him. And does he keep it to himself this time? Did he learn anything from last time? No. So he tells everyone this dream, and this time even his dad is upset. I mean, his He's a daddy's boy, and he's, even his dad's upset. He's like, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. 
One day, his brothers are out tending the flocks. They're working in the Middle East, in the hot sun. And Joseph isn't with them. He's just hanging around the house. Now, how come all the brothers are out working but Joseph? They are wondering the same stinking thing. So eventually, Jacob tells Joe to turn off the PlayStation and go out and check on his brothers. And, and here's where the story turns. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Question. How did they know it was Joseph when he was so far away? He's wearing the robe. <laughs> and now it just gets, it gets nuts. So, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, <laughs> our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. H how many of you grew up with brothers and sisters? Okay, how many of you have ever felt angry with a brother or sister? Okay, how many of you ever sold a brother <laughs> to the Ishmaelites? <laughs> oh, well you wanted to. I see it. Right, and so now comes the cover-up. Like they're, they're like, oh, shoot, what are we going to tell Dad? They got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. <laughs> he recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So the robe, which had been their father's pride and joy, would now be his sorrow and anguish. This blood-stained robe. And what the boys hoped would end their pain only led to more. What they really wanted was to see their dad's eyes light up for them the way it used to light up for Joseph. Instead, because of what they had done, the light went out altogether. Now, if, if we stopped at this moment in the story, this is a tragedy, right? I mean, Romeo and Juliet and Shakespeare got nothing on Joseph and his, and his, and his brothers. I mean, this is a tragedy. Hey, did any of you guys ever see the movie Legends of the Fall? Did you see that? Brad Pitt, 
By the way, someone was going to play me. my life it'd be Matt Damon that's <laughs> okay but Brad Pitt Adrian Quinn Anthony Hopkins okay this is just amazing cinematography but it is a complete tragedy so like the movie is like it starts off great it's beautiful family beautiful family love each other starts off okay okay but then bad stuff happens and then you guys worse stuff happens and then unbearable stuff happens, and then it's over. So here's the story, as far as I can remember. Uh, it's about a dad and three boys. The youngest boy gets married to a beautiful girl, and he loves her. And she is pure sweetness. But he goes off, he's an activist, and he signs up, and he goes off to fight in World War I, and he's killed. And the death scene is just grisly. So he's tear-gassed by the Germans, and caught in barbed wire, and they're bearing down on him, and he can't see, and he's caught in the fence, and he's helpless. So he screams for his older brother, Tristan, Brad Pitt, who's nearby, who only signed up and enlisted to go to war to try to keep his brother from getting killed. He sees Samuel, his little brother, blind and helpless in the barbed wire, and they yell to each other, right? Samuel's like, Tristan, and he's like, Samuel, and he's trying to get there, and he's Tristan, Samuel, and he can't get there, and Samuel is gunned down by the Germans while hung up in the barbed wire. And then Tristan, okay, Brad Pitt, goes home to discover that while they were at war, his other brother has fallen in love with Samuel's widow. Now, she actually loves Brad Pitt because, well, <laughs> but she ends up marrying the other brother who's not nearly as hot. And so, so, so you guys, Brad Pitt is miserable, and, and his other brother is miserable because he knows that his deceased brother's widow, his new wife, actually loves Brad Pitt. And the girl is miserable because she lost her husband, and she can't be with Brad Pitt, and so everybody's miserable. And the father is so despondent over all this that he has a stroke, and he lives the rest of his life incapacitated. You guys, man, it is bad. <laughs> And then it gets worse, and then it gets unbearable, and then it's over. And so when Jen and I were first dating, I had recently seen it in the theater, and I mean the cinematography. And so I, I like, wanted to show her my, my sweet, sensitive side. And so I thought, oh, I got a great idea. I'll, I'll rent this, and then I'll console her. You get me, right, Joe? <laughs> no. <laughs> and you guys, when it was over, she was mad at me. She was like, you knew what happens and you put me through that? What does it matter with you? So, okay. The, the Joseph story, it kind of starts out like Legends of the Fall. Right? But as we're going to see, it's far from a tragedy because God's going to move. Because God's going to heal. Because this is what our God does. But the healing process for this family is going to be long and slow, and it comes through circumstances that nobody would have predicted. And through all the crazy ups and downs, we were repeatedly told by the author, but the Lord was with Joseph. This stuff keeps happening to him, but the Lord was with Joseph. And then this bad thing happens, but the Lord was with Joseph. 
And Joseph's story now starts to look like one of those like good news, bad news kind of stories. This is going to go fast, so put your seatbelt on. Joseph is his daddy's favorite. That's very good. But his brothers hate his guts. That's very bad. His daddy gives him an ornate robe. That's really good. But his brothers rip it off, sell him into slavery, and pretend he's dead. That's really bad. (laughs) In Egypt, he's sold to Potiphar, a high-ranking, wealthy Egyptian official. But the Lord is with Joseph. So Potiphar is deeply impressed with him, and Joseph ends up running Potiphar's entire estate. That's very good. Joseph happens to be an exceptionally attractive young man. That's really good. (laughs) But then Potiphar's wife gets the hots for Joseph, and she tries to seduce him, and that's really bad. But Joseph is filled with integrity, and he resists her, and that's really good. But then she gets bitter, and she falsely accuses him, and she tells her husband and anybody who will listen, Joseph tried to have sex with me, and she gets him arrested and sent to prison, and that's very bad. But in prison, the Lord is with Joseph, and the warden is impressed and puts Joseph in charge, and he ends up running the whole prison, and that's really good. And then two of Pharaoh's officials, they get thrown in prison. And in, and in prison, they have these wild, crazy dreams that haunt them. And so official number one hears that, that Joseph is good with dreams. And so he tells, he, he tells Joseph the dream, and Joseph interprets it, interprets it. And he says, look, official, in, th- in three days, Pharaoh's going to restore you to your old position. And the official says, if that happens, I will remember you. That's very good. So official number two tells Joseph his dream, and Joseph interprets it. In three days, Pharaoh's going to execute you and hang your corpse on a pole. (laughs) And official number two says, that's the last time I tell you one of my dreams. (laughs) And three days later, it all happens, just as Joseph said. Official number two is executed, his body's hung on a pole, and that's bad. Okay, but official number one goes back to the palace. That's good. But official number one forgets about Joseph and his promise, and he just leaves him to rot in prison. That's bad. And so after two long years, Pharaoh has a dream, and nobody can interpret it. The official remembers Joseph, who interpreted his dream in prison, and so Joseph is brought into Pharaoh, and he interprets Pharaoh's dream. It says, There will be seven good years of abundance and richness in Egypt, But after that, there will be seven terrible years of famine all across the land. But if we use the seven years of abundance to get ready, Egypt will be able to withstand the famine. And Pharaoh is so impressed by Joseph and his wisdom and his ability that he puts him in charge of all of Egypt. This is very good. So what started out looking like Legends of the Fall turns out to be Cinderella. And because God is with Joseph, after years of slavery and prison, Joseph suddenly becomes the second most powerful man in the world. And so, you guys, the moral of the story is obvious. If I'm faithful to God, then no matter how bad things get, eventually I will be vice president. (laughs) Right? Yeah, maybe not. So, 
So what's happening here? Well, here's what I can count on. I can count on that even when things seem to be falling apart, God is with me. And he knows, and he cares, and he is working in ways that I can't see. And so can I just say that wherever you are in your story, there's more to your story. You might be in the middle of a dark chapter right now, and it might look like it could never get better. But God is with you, and your story's not done. And you don't know what's around the corner. But what you can know is this, God is with you. And he is for you. And you're like, but I haven't been for him. He's for you. He's patient. He's tenacious. He is pursuing you. He is working on your behalf. He's working offstage in ways that you can't see what he's up to. And he is, he's all about healing and forgiveness and reconciliation and renewal. He's working. And I don't know how that might play out for you. It certainly doesn't mean that you're going to get everything that you want. It may mean that God is working to do things you don't even realize you want. And it definitely means that you're not alone in the struggle. And it definitely means more chapters are coming. Now, for Joseph, it kind of feels like at this point the story's done. I mean, how could it get any better? I mean, he's arrived, right? And so we should, like, tie a bow on it. But there's so much more to come because God is still not done. So the famine that Joseph predicted comes and spreads everywhere. It spreads well outside the bounds of Egypt to the rural areas to a guy named Jacob and his sons. Jacob gets word that there are storehouses of grain in Egypt. And so he sends all of his sons to Egypt except Benjamin. Benjamin is the youngest, and he's now Jacob's favorite. With Joseph gone, Benjamin is his only remaining son from his favorite wife. So Jacob has Benjamin stay behind. The journey's too dangerous. Jacob's like, you know what? If the other sons die, so be it. But not Benjamin. And the family dysfunction just continues. Okay, so, so all of Jacob's sons, minus Benjamin, arrive in Egypt to buy grain. But as foreigners, they need special permission to buy Egyptian grain, right? It's a famine, and they're going to need permission to buy Egyptian grain. And guess who they have to get permission from? Old Joe. And now it's been decades since they sold him into slavery, and they have no idea that this Egyptian ruler is their brother. And so when they arrive, they're not even thinking about that, and they don't recognize him, and they bow down before him to beg. He immediately recognizes them, but he doesn't let on. And instead, he accuses them of being spies from a foreign nation. And so they say, no, 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 we're not from another nation. We're, we're just like a little nomadic family of shepherds. We have one more brother at home and our dad, and, and that's all there are. And so we're, we're not a threat to anyone. And Joseph says, well, if that's true, then go home and get your brother and bring him back to me as proof you're telling the truth. Then I'll give you all the grain you need, and then you can live. This is strange, right? I mean, why doesn't he just lay his cards on the table? His, his brothers are desperate. He's got the upper hand. They'll do anything he wants. Why do this? But Joseph starts this odd little charade. You go back home, and you get your little brother, the brother whom your father loves so much that he wouldn't let him come here with you, 
and you bring him here. You bring him here to me. When I see him, I know you're telling the truth. Then I'll let you have all the grain you want. In the meantime, leave one brother here as collateral under arrest, and then the rest of you go back. Okay, so their brother Simeon is bound and chained and held in an Egyptian prison. And, and when they get home, Jacob comes out to see the boys, and he's getting older. It's a little hard for him to see, but he's like, one, two, three, four. And they're like, didn't there used, sorry, didn't there used to be ten of you? And they're like, yeah, so we had a small complication. We were, we were accused of being spies by the prime minister of Egypt, and we tried to tell him we're not, but he wouldn't listen. And so anyway, he, he, he made us leave Simeon behind. Um, Dad, Simeon's in prison. But it's no big deal because all we have to do is bring Benjamin back to Egypt. Then he'll believe us and he'll let Simeon out of prison and we can buy all the grain that we need and we can come back home and feed you and feed everybody and we can all live happily ever after. And Jacob says, oh yeah? Well, you're not taking Benjamin. And they're like, what? What are you talking about? And he's like, look, I already lost my favorite son from my, my favorite wife. And now Benjamin's my, my only remaining son from my favorite wife, so you're not taking Benjamin to Egypt. It's too dangerous. And they're like, well, Dad, what about Simeon? He's going, hey, it's tough out there. You know, <laughs> things happen. <laughs> but the famine continues, and they're going to starve, okay? And so Jacob finally says, you have to go back to Egypt. And, and they, they're like, we, we're not going without Benjamin. So finally he realizes, he's like, okay, take Benjamin. So when they get to Egypt, Joseph has them all come over for dinner. And Joseph seats them around the table in order from oldest to youngest. And they are weirded out. Like, how does he know, Right? And then during, during dinner, something else strange happens. It says, this is verse 34. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. What is happening here? Why does he supersize Benjamin's dinner? Right? Well, one more time, a younger brother is being treated as a favorite, and Joseph watches to see how the others are going to respond. The next day, he sends him away, loaded up with grain. But again, he does something weird. He has his servants hide a silver goblet in Benjamin's supplies. And before they get very far on the journey, he sends his officials out after them, and they chase him down, and they search him, and the silver goblet is found in Benjamin's bag. And so they're, they're all taken back to Joseph, and Joseph says, the rest of you, you can all head home. Go home to your father. Have good lives. But Benjamin, the thief, must stay here. Benjamin must rot in prison. And here are his brothers one more time with their little brother, their father's favorite, and one more time they can be rid of him. This time they don't even have to do anything wrong. Like they don't have to kill him. They don't have to sell him into slavery. They don't have to cover anything up. All they have to do is do nothing. But this time it all goes very differently. So Judah, the one that suggested selling Joseph into slavery, Judah stands and says, Mr. Prime Minister, I can't do that. I simply cannot go home to my father without my brother. I just can't. Instead, 
let me take Benjamin's place. I know a crime was committed. I know the debt must be paid. I know someone must be punished. I understand. Let me pay the debt. Let his punishment fall on me. And Judah offers up his life to save his spoiled little brother. And instantly, Joseph sees the true state of his brother's hearts now. He sees that they've, they've changed. They've grown. And now this charade ends, and the masks come off, and the whole story has been building up to this moment. So try to feel the emotions in this like family reunion moment for these brothers. Chapter 45, start with verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. Feels like a godfather moment. <laughs> when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You and your children and your grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. When the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this, load, the, load your animals and return to the land of Canaan and bring your father and your families back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you can enjoy the fat of the land. This is, this, this is a picture into, into God's dream for the human race. This is a story that ends with humility and repentance, and forgiveness, and healing. 
But who would have ever thought, like in the beginning, in the middle of the story, who would have ever thought that this was possible? This family was as dysfunctional as it gets. And yet God was at work offstage in ways that no one could see or predict. He, he reconciled dead relationships and restored hearts. Simultaneously, he also saved millions from famine and birthed the nation of Israel, which would give the world Jesus. He moved despite jealousy, lies, wounds, and hate. He moved through one faithful man who trusted him. So to close, I just want you to think about your world right now. Where in your life is there a relationship that needs reconciliation? Some of you have been, have been deeply wounded by someone, a husband or a wife, an ex, mom or dad, a business partner, an unfaithful friend. And, and that hurt runs so deep that even asking the question for you, it's infuriating. Because when that person comes to your mind, you think, no, like, no, he doesn't deserve it. You're like, no, 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 she doesn't deserve it. And that's true. You're right. Neither did Joseph's brothers. Okay, Neither do I. Neither do you. We don't do it because someone deserves it or earns it. This is the, the crazy thing. We do it because it is the way of the one that we follow. We do it because another young dreamer came into the world and he too was stripped of his robe and betrayed and beaten and deserted by his brothers. And he's the one who finally and ultimately said, I will pay the debt. I will bear the cross. Let the punishment fall on me. This world is a broken mess, but God is, God is in the process of healing and restoring and reclaiming. And he's doing it through Jesus. He's doing it. Paul writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And this means that resentment and hostility and judgment and superiority and withdrawal, they are not available to you anymore as acceptable options. It means that where there is a broken relationship in your life, God is wanting you to take the first step, you to take initiative, you to forgive, you to reach out, you to seek reconciliation. And if it gets messy, let it be messy. If it's confusing, then you get wisdom. If you need prayer, get prayer. If you need wise counsel, get counsel. But you've been given the ministry of reconciliation, which means you take the first step. You make the first move. And this also means that, that when we see someone, like anyone in our world, someone who's, who's left out or excluded, shut out or shut down, whether it's because of the color of their skin or their age or their accent or their gender or their background or their cool factor or whatever it might be, 
The rest of the world can sit on the, a sideline and shrug its shoulders and cross its arms, but as a follower of Jesus, it can't be you. As one who follows the Prince of Peace, God, let your heart be broken and let your life be used. And so you be the person at work or you be the person in your family or you be the person in your group of friends to take a step to make a move. And one, one final thing, coming back to what we started with. One day, you may have power over someone who's hurt you. And in that moment, you'll have a decision to make. What, what you do when, you, when you've got the power and your words determine, what, will you, what do you do when you've got the power and your words determine the destiny of the one that's wounded you? What do you do? Do you pay him back? Or do you pave the way forward? Do you do all that you can to pave the way forward? And we've talked repeatedly in the last few weeks about the saying, hurt people, what? They hurt people. And that's often true. It's often true. I mean, bullied people are, are, are more likely to bully people, right? And abandoned sons can wind up, very much can wind up becoming absent fathers. And wounded daughters are more prone to wound their kids. But here's God's dream, and here's the great reversal, and this is what Jesus is up to in our world. This is the dream, that healed people would heal people. That forgiven people would forgive people. That his beloved would, in turn, love those that are hard to love. And we, we do this because it is the way of the one we follow who prayed that day famously, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's our king. We're his servants, and so we do his bidding. We heal, we forgive, we, we love with whole hearts. You guys, this is the hope of the world. It is the only way forward. It always has been, always will be, and it starts with you and me. And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to honor Jesus by, by taking communion. The Apostle Paul wrote these sacred words. Says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the bread represents the broken body of Jesus and the juice that we have, his blood. And so we're going to sing four songs, I think, together. And you can come anytime. There's bread and the juice in the front here, but also in the back. And I believe there's a, a gluten-free option in the back. Is that true, Jen? There is. Good work, Jen. <laughs> and so when you come, um, you can take the bread and juice back to your seat with you. Or you can come and you can kneel. Um, and you can just take a moment of contemplation or of prayer. And that, that's available for anybody who wants that. And to take communion here, you don't need to have taken a class at our church or anything like that. You just need to be in a spot where you can authentically say, Jesus, I need your healing. And I want you to make me into a healer. I trust you. 
and your grace that comes to me by your sacrifice. But help me trust you more and learn to live into the way that you're showing me. Our Father in heaven, I know that the wounds in this room run deeper than I could possibly comprehend. And you see them, and this is hard, hard stuff. And you're not asking us to go back into the hands of an abuser or to start sharing secrets with someone that gossiped about us or to do any of that. But you are asking us, where possible, to make the first step towards reconciliation with people that we can. God, this is the hope of the world. This is what Jesus came to do. This is what your followers, when following you deeply and authentically, have been doing for thousands of years. And it makes a difference in our world every time. This is the hope of the world. This is the way forward. It starts with me. It starts with us. And so, Father, would you begin a healing work in some places where it is needed through us as we go forward with you, humbly trusting you, asking for power and, and your strength.